to the DC Debrief for Friday, September 29th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, a showdown over a shutdown in Congress, Biden impeachment inquiry underway, Biden and Trump go UAW fishing, and Republicans not named Donald Trump's bar in California at the second GOP presidential debate. I'm going to chat with Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Elections about that for our deep dive. Coming up here on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, folks, to tell a friend or a family member about this fine podcast. If you want the news from Washington, D.C., without any opinion, without me spouting my thoughts and my ideas about what's going on, if you just want information to know what's going on without being told what to think about it, this is the podcast for you, and this is the podcast to tell your friends and your family about. So we're at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. You'll get a quick debrief on all the big stories from the week that was in Washington, D.C., with a little analysis thrown in by some experts and some guests along the way. So if that's your thing, Sign on up and leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief for this week. Shutdown latest and the border with a midnight Saturday deadline for Congress to at least find some kind of short-term agreement to fund the government. It looks like a virtual certainty that we will have our first government shutdown since Christmas time of 2018. Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have been working well together, senators in a bipartisan way, finishing up a continuing resolution this week that would fund the government for about a month and a half. However, House Republicans say that Senate bill would be dead on arrival in the House, as noted by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We need a stopgap measure to keep government open. I know Sunday is football day. It is the weekend. Sometimes we get right there, we play through. We, we, we get into overtime, we get it done. If we're both past something, that's a good thing. Then we both know where, where the markers are, right? McCarthy says he's planning on a vote later today on a deal that would cut spending by 8% for a number of agencies and that would provide stricter border control policies. House Republicans and some in the Senate are drawing a line in the sand, however, demanding that the Biden administration address their border policies to stem the tide of illegal immigrants coming into the country. And it's likely this bill that will be voted on today will have enough House Republicans to support it because of the half dozen to dozen holdouts on the far right. And the border is playing a large role in this. These hardline Republicans say they will not vote for any continuing resolution and that they want the White House to make changes at the border to stop the influx of immigrants and dangerous drugs like fentanyl from from flooding into the country. Uh, There's also a lot of pushback to more funding for Ukraine. And a number of these hardline elements on the right don't like voting for these bills, these continuing resolutions, because they say they were promised by Speaker McCarthy months ago when they finally acquiesced and voted for him to be speaker that McCarthy made promises to them that they would see top line numbers in all the 12 appropriations bills. We discussed this on last week's edition of the D.C. debrief, and and McCarthy has yet to do that. Mitch McConnell, however, noted that as House Republicans are calling for the Biden administration to do more at the border and for these short-term funding bills and and year-long funding bills, that there should be more money put towards building a wall along the southern border and that there should be stricter policies put in place. McConnell noted that a government shutdown would only make things at the border less safe. Down the government. For those of us who are concerned about the border, 
and want it to be improved. The Border Patrol and the ICE agencies have to continue to work for nothing. And Speaker McCarthy is facing a difficult decision now. And it seems there are two tacks he can take, either go along with the agenda by those furthest to his right, as he has been doing these last few days, many of whom were opposed to his speakership earlier this year, or to cut a deal with Democrats and the more moderate Republicans, which would then likely trigger one of the GOP holdouts to call for an end to his speakership. They might not be able to prevent the continuing resolution from being passed, but they could put his speakership in jeopardy. And so these are the decisions facing House Speaker McConnell and House Speaker McCarthy. And it's difficult to see right now how the Senate and the House, first of all, it's difficult to see how the House can get something together, but it's difficult to see how the House and the Senate will be able to come together on a continuing resolution, a short-term funding bill, let alone a larger funding bill for the next fiscal year. Uh, but that is the task facing Congress. And the deal, the time to the time runs out, the clock strikes zero at midnight on Saturday to avoid a government shutdown. GOP presidential debate number two. Seven Republican presidential candidates not named Donald Trump took the stage in California on Wednesday night all of them seeking that viral moment that they hope will allow them to cut into Donald Trump's large lead in the GOP primary. Did anyone succeed? CBN News' Matt Galka has the recap. In a debate on the Fox Business Network on the Simi Valley, California stage, an early moment came when candidates quickly made note of one key absence. Where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Other frequent targets included the economy or so-called Bidenomics as well as the southern border. We have to secure the border. The way we do that is, first of all, defund sanctuary cities. You see what's happening in Philadelphia right now. It's got to stop. I do go a step further. You're right about that, Ilya. I favor ending birthright citizenship for the kids of illegal immigrants in this country. Ramaswamy's southern border solution caused Tim Scott to attack him on another major foreign policy issue, ties to China. You were just in business with the Chinese Communist Party and the same people that funded Hunter Biden millions of dollars. Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley both enjoyed polling boosts after their first debate performances and continued to spar in round two, notably over Chinese-owned social media company TikTok and Ramaswamy's unwillingness to ban it. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. The issue over funding Ukraine to defend itself against Russia continues to divide the candidates. China is the real enemy, and we're driving Russia further into China's arms. We need a reasonable peace plan to end this, especially if this is a country whose president just last week Vivek, was hailing let Nazi Putin in have ranks. Ukraine. That's a green and light to China to take Taiwan. We need the a peace comes through strength. Late in the debate, the GOP hopefuls were asked how the abortion issue might impact elections. Election chances. I reject this idea that pro-lifers are to blame 
for midterm defeats. I think there's other reasons for that. Uh, the former president, um, you know, he's missing in action tonight. He's had a lot to say about that. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. And if you're pro-life, you have to be pro-life for the entire life, not just the nine months in the womb. Former President Donald Trump opted to give a speech to Michigan auto workers instead of debating, but his campaign did release a statement at the end of the night. They called the debate, quote, boring and inconsequential and pointed out Trump's 40 to 50 point lead in some polls before ultimately calling on the RNC to cease future debates. Matt Gelka, CBN News. And we'll have more on this, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, with Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Elections coming up here in just a couple of minutes. UAW vote fishing. Auto workers in Michigan took center stage in the race for the White House this week, with President Biden joining United Auto Workers Union members on the picket line on Tuesday, followed by Donald Trump delivering a speech to non-union auto parts manufacturing workers on Wednesday. CBN News White House correspondent Abigail Robertson has more on President Biden's day with the UAW. Made a lot of sacrifices. Gave up a lot. And the companies were in trouble. Now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. Biden's visit follows an invitation from UAW leader Sean Fain to join the strike. The companies know how to make this right. The public is on our side. And the members of the UAW are ready to stand up. The union has expanded the strike to more than 20 states as members demand a 40% increase in wages, stronger benefits, and a four-day, 32-hour work week. Nobody wants to be out here. We want to be in there working. We want to be, you know, getting parts to our customers and to the dealers. Um, but it comes to a point where you had to draw a line in the sand. According to the Wall Street Journal, last year, the CEOs of Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis earned between 21 to $29 million dollars or about 300 times the average employee salary. Seems a little out of out of balance. And I do also think that, you know, they're making so much more on cars from a profitability standpoint that it probably is time, you know, to be able to compensate the workers fairly, you know, for, for their efforts. Syracuse University professor Patrick Penfield tells CBN News he believes the UAW demands are warranted and thinks the workers have the upper hand given an $825 million strike fund that could support the workers for weeks. I don't think they'll get everything, but I do think they're going to get a good majority of it because I think the the automobile companies are really and it's a no-win situation for them they need to produce more cars and that's because just of all the pent-up sales that they have from a demand standpoint and as I mentioned one day later Trump visited Drake Enterprises which again is a non-union shop located a half hour outside of Detroit where he made his pitch to the UAW for support so let me say to every UAW member and skilled workers all across our nation, Joe Biden, the Democrat Party, and their political cronies ceased to serve your interests a long time ago. They don't care about you. In his speech, Trump accused Biden of trying to assassinate the auto industry. In reality, they don't represent you. They represent a deep state bureaucracy, a global financial class, and a political class that have taken control of this country for their own enrichment and self-purposes. And the former president blasted the Biden administration's push for the auto industry to invest heavily in electric cars, saying it will cost Americans jobs. On day one, I will terminate Joe Biden's electric vehicle mandate, and I will cancel every job-killing regulation that is crushing American 
auto workers. The UAW strike is now two weeks old. Workers are calling for shorter work weeks and more pay as CEOs for these for the three major auto auto American auto companies are raking in record profits, as you heard from Abby's story. Trump clearly already looking past the Republican primary with his trip to Michigan and toward the general election, trying to firm up support in Battleground, Michigan, a state that President Biden won by just three points in 2020. First Biden impeachment hearing. The House Oversight Committee held their first hearing into their impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Correspondent Caitlin Burke breaks down a contentious hearing on the Hill. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says their evidence shows that President Biden abused his power by playing a key role in the family business, which also included Hunter Biden and others. That role involved selling the Joe Biden brand for anyone willing to pay for power influence and access. Today, the House Oversight Committee will examine over two dozen pieces of evidence revealing Joe Biden's corruption and abuse of public office. That evidence reportedly includes emails, text messages, bank records, and the testimony of Biden business associates. Thursday's hearing, however, did not entail unveiling new evidence. Rather, it was an effort to lay groundwork for why the GOP believes the inquiry is warranted. Whether it was lunches, phone calls, White House meetings or official foreign trips, Hunter Biden cashed in by arranging access to Joe Biden, the family brand. GOP called witness Jonathan Turley, an expert on impeachment, testified that he believes the House has passed the threshold for an inquiry, but not for charges. I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. That is something that an inquiry has to establish. If the Republicans had a smoking gun, or even a dripping water pistol. They would be presenting it today, but they've got nothing on Joe Biden. Representative Jamie Raskin, the ranking Democrat on the committee, displayed a government shutdown clock, criticizing Republicans for focusing on impeachment when the nation is days away from running out of money because they can't agree on a spending bill. Raskin also accused the GOP of opening an impeachment inquiry due to pressure from former President Donald Trump, bringing up a Truth Social post from the end of August where Trump writes, quote, impeach the bum or fade into oblivion. They did it to us. Of course, the standard for impeachment is not whether they did it to us, but whether the president committed treason or bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. But the Constitution's irrelevant. To them, what counts is what Donald Trump wants. It's unclear whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy could even get the votes to pursue actual articles of impeachment. And Senate Republicans warn there's no way the Democratic majority there will bring this to a trial. What I'm hearing, I got three hearings I wanted to keep you aware of. And the first, uh, House Republicans were attacking SEC Chairman Gary Gensler for a number of things. Gensler, of course, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, among them not being transparent about his interactions with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, also that he has ignored the House's requests for information on a number of different items and that he makes rules on his own with no congressional input, as well as for repeated attacks on the crypto industry, as Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry uh, brought up in his questioning of Gensler, specifically on whether Gensler thinks Bitcoin is a security. You believe Bitcoin is, is not a security. Is that true? Well, I think the staff, the SEC have also, uh, and the 
prior well, chair. I'm just asking you this question, and this is not a gotcha. I thought there's going to be an easy softball into harder questions. Do you think Bitcoin is a security? No, I think I've said this in the past that I think that it doesn't I'm asking you to answer test. my question now. This is not supposed to be hard. I know. I said just it does not meet the Howey test, which is the, the okay. law of the land about being so an investment So it doesn't meet the Howey security. test. So therefore, it's a commodity. Is that fair? I, I, I would say it's not a security, and then the test is otherwise for other okay. uh, laws. And you're right. We are blessed with the largest, most sophisticated, most innovative capital markets in the world. But we cannot take this for granted. Even a gold medalist must keep training. With all due respect, Mr. Chairman, if the U.S. capital markets are a gold medalist, you are the Tanya Harding of securities regulation because you are kneecapping the U.S. capital markets with the avalanche of red tape coming out of your commission. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I, I really liked your colorful uh, testimony. Uh, and you're right. We are blessed with the largest, most sophisticated, most innovative capital markets in the world. But we cannot take this for granted. Even a gold medalist must keep training. With all due respect, Mr. Chairman, if the U.S. capital markets are a gold medalist, you are the Tanya Harding of securities regulation because you are kneecapping the U.S. capital markets with the avalanche of red tape coming out of your commission. Senate intelligence on China. Many in Congress are concerned with Chinese companies increasingly buying up farmland in the American heartland and using that land to grow marijuana or to gain access to land that is near military bases in the middle of the country. Republican Senator Joni Ernst. In 2021, we had a China-based company purchase 300 acres of valuable farmland only 20 minutes from the Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota. And mind you, this base is home to some of the nation's most sensitive military drone technology. And as if that wasn't enough, um, earlier this year, the world watched as a Chinese spy balloon crossed over our sovereign border, gathering intelligence for the Chinese Communist Party over much of the Midwest and our nation's prized land. There is concern that these Chinese companies could eliminate food crops, uh, land that could be used to grow food in America and to grow marijuana and, and other items that could increase food scarcity here in the United States. In a hearing about the Maui wildfires, Hawaii's top public utility officials, as well as the president of Hawaiian Electric, testified on Thursday about the potential role the electric grid played in last month's deadly Maui wildfire. Again, remember, 97 people were killed. More than 2,000 buildings, mostly homes, were destroyed. Members of the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee questioned utility officials about how the deadliest wildfire in more than a century here in the U.S. began and whether the grid in Lahaina was safe and properly maintained. The first fire started at 6.30 in the morning when strong winds appeared to cause a Hawaiian electric power line to fall down, which um, ignited dry brush in the area and grass near a large subdivision. Shili Kamura, a Hawaiian electric CEO, the Hawaiian electric CEO, says it appears the first of these two fires, the one at 6.30 a.m., was caused by a downed power line, but that the power lines were turned off long before a second fire began. And she was asked about that by Republican Congressman Morgan Griffith. And are you reexamining your protocols because they didn't work? We are absolutely reexamining our protocols. I want to make it absolutely clear 
that the afternoon fire, the cause of that fire has not yet been determined. And, and, and let me, let me and I, I heard your testimony and I just want to confirm, you never re-energized your power lines once you shut them down. Is that correct? That's right. And um, a little and, bit before 7 a.m., our lines were not re-energized. North Korea expels a U.S. soldier. The Pentagon says the American soldier who sprinted into North North not North Dakota into North Korea across the heavily fortified border between North Korea and South Korea about two months ago was taken to a Texas Army base in San Antonio to undergo more medical checks and to be interviewed by the government after he was returned to the U.S. by North Korea earlier this week. Private Travis King will now be debriefed by officials, and Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says they're not focusing on any potential additional disciplinary actions against Private King right now. So I don't have any more for you at this moment on any disciplinary actions that would be taken. Um, right now, what we are focused um, on is making sure that he is healthy. Um, I was told he was in good spirits when he was getting on um, the flight to return home. Um, this is, of course, uh, going through the reintegration program is something that's going to take time. Um, and so we're really focused on his health, um, reuniting him with his family. Um, and when we have more details provide, we'd be happy to do that. Private King was on a tour with uh, people who were in South Korea touring the DMZ when he suddenly bolted from that tour group and ran over to the North Korean side. Uh, Private King has had run-ins with the law in South Korea while serving in the U.S. military. Singh said the private is getting debriefed to find out what he may have told North Korean officials while he was held for the last two months. Menendez indictment. New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez remains defiant in the face of federal bribery charges as he met privately with Senate Democratic colleagues in an official meeting on Thursday, and he said he has no plans to step down. In a closed-door luncheon at the Capitol on Thursday, Menendez repeatedly denied doing anything wrong and said that he will beat these charges. He is accused of secretly trying to advance Egyptian interests and pressuring prosecutors to help his friends. Now, more than half of Democratic senators have said Menendez should resign from the Senate. He pleaded not guilty on Wednesday. The New Jersey senator is accused, along with his wife Nadine, in an indictment that was released on Friday of last week of using his position— as a New Jersey senator, to aid the government of Egypt and to pressure federal prosecutors to drop a case against a friend, among other case, among other allegations of corruption. The indictment was wild. If you've read this indictment, it's crazy. They say that Menendez was paid in gold bars, that he was given a luxury car and crash and can cash by three New Jersey businessmen as bribes in exchange for multiple acts of corruption. Prosecutors detailed meetings and dinners between Menendez and senior Egyptian officials. They say Menendez gave sensitive U.S. government information to Egyptian officials and even ghost wrote a letter to fellow senators, colleagues, encouraging them to lift a hold on $300 million in aid to Egypt. Now, this is the second corruption case in a decade against Menendez, whose last trial involving different allegations ended with jurors failing to reach a verdict in 2017. But serious charges. And uh, in the indictment, they said that they found suits in Menendez's closet that were stuffed with cash. 
uh, for, as part of, as part of this uh, the, this alleged agreement uh, that Menendez engaged with uh, with Egyptian interests. So, uh, something to watch here over the next few months. Israel designated into the visa waiver program. The Biden administration has admitted Israel into a select group of countries whose citizens will be allowed to travel to the United States without having to get a visa in advance. It comes despite some concerns by the Biden administration about the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinian Americans. This is a major accomplishment for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who obviously has not had the best relationship with the Biden administration. They got it in just under the wire uh, before a potential government shutdown. Under this waiver program, as of November 30th, Israelis will be able to travel to the U.S. for business or for pleasure for up to 90 days, so three months, without a visa, simply by registering with the Electronic System for Travel Authorization. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security administers this program, and there are currently 40 mostly European and Asian countries who are also a part of this program where you can travel to the U.S. for three months without a visa. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said the agreement, uh, after more than a decade of work, will enhance the two nations' collaboration on counterterrorism, law enforcement, and other common priorities, and will make the allies more secure. Palestinian diplomats are complaining that the U.S. has allowed Israel into the program without the country fulfilling its commitments of equal treatment for Palestinian Americans. Palestinian advocacy groups have reported that even during the test phase of the visa waiver program, Palestinian Americans have faced discrimination and harassment by Israeli authorities at airports and checkpoints. All right, everybody, that's your debrief for this week. And now let's get into our deep dive for this week's podcast. Well, the GOP held their second presidential debate this week. A lot of crosstalk, a lot of back and forth, and not a whole lot of movement in the polls just yet, but uh, we'll see how things work out over the next couple of weeks ahead of the third debate, uh, whenever that rolls around. And joining me to talk about what he saw at the second presidential debate, this one in California, Nathan Gonzalez with Inside Elections, uh, here to break it all down for us. Nathan, thank you for coming on the DC Debrief again. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Always a pleasure. I'm glad, glad to be back from my basement again. <laughs> That's right. Both both you and me and nestled into some corners of our homes here talking about politics. And uh, it was a very interesting evening, although I guess the larger question here is, and I, I think this is something that Donald Trump has, has essentially said, is it seems as though we are still just looking at a bunch of folks who are competing for a distant second place. And even if somebody gets a huge bump, let's say somebody takes a 20-point bump up, you're still trailing by 20 or 30 points to, to Donald Trump at this point. So I guess the, the first question is, did you see anything that happened in the debate that you think is really going to matter in terms of putting a little bit of pressure on Donald Trump? Short answer is no, but then this would be a very short podcast uh, <laughs> if we left it at that. I, I would say, first, I think the winner of the debate was probably Trump. Now we have to wait another couple of weeks to see whether it did indeed move numbers. I didn't see or hear anything that would lead me to believe that this was a game-changing debate. I was surprised at how it took so long for some Republicans to use some obvious attacks against Trump. For example, I was waiting for the abortion attack, you know, former President Trump coming out kind of against the, some of the abortion bans that state legislatures have been um, 
going for and sort of flying in the face of the pro-life movement, what the pro-life movement has been trying to do for decades. And it took an hour and 45 minutes for Governor Ron DeSantis, for anyone to bring it up. And DeSantis was the one who brought it up. We saw little pieces of going after Trump on the deficit and how much uh, was added to the deficit under the Trump administration. Little thing, but they were so fleeting moments that then it went, you know, they were attacking each other or you just couldn't hear anything in, in general, because there was everyone, it smelled like desperation and everyone trying to get their moment. And it just resulted in a level of chaos that I'm not sure voters are really distinguishing between between the candidates. I, you know, I, I think Nikki Haley proved herself. I think Nikki Haley is the best debater out of this field. You know, she she's consistently quick with her facts. She doesn't run so over time that it sounds awkward when the buzzer goes off and they go on for like she gets in her her facts. She gets in her her hits on the other candidates. Uh, but does it matter? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it does in, in the context of the Trump's lead in the race. Yeah, and and DeSantis is still obviously, I think, generally regarded as the number two, but there are a number of polls in which Vivek Ramaswamy has jumped ahead of him. There's a stray poll here and there where Nikki Haley maybe has uh, jumped ahead of the two of them, depending on the state that that you're looking at. And so uh, if you're if you're looking at some of these folks and you're you're trying to figure out who can be that that number two, do you think that debate will cement someone as a number two? Because we are still a few months away from from Iowa and New Hampshire. There are still some things that could potentially move the needle one way or the other. But when you've still got so many candidates in the mix here and so many different candidates debating, so many candidates competing for time, for questions, it's really hard for anyone to really start to make a charge and, and go after anyone because you're kind of fighting the person in the moment there, it seems. Right. Everyone, I think, on that stage wants a one-on-one versus Trump, but they believe they should be the one to be that that sole adversary to Trump. And so as long as multiple people see a path to victory for them, they don't want to cede that ground or that mantle to one of the other candidates. And none of them re- have enough authority or political heft to require that. I think DeSantis had that opportunity earlier in the race and just kind of fumbled it away. away. And no one's None of these cans are afraid of Ron DeSantis right now, <laughs> whereas yeah. coming off his big reelection victory, there was some of that. Oh, you know, maybe he's maybe he's the guy. But that I feel like that shine has has glossed over. I've been trying to put where we are in the race into a little bit of a into a little bit of perspective. Like, is it a short time to Iowa or not? Because, you know, I think we just finished week four of the college football season. We will have a college football champion before the Iowa caucuses. So to me, that sounds a long way away. But then you have to think in the context of Trump has such a big lead. It's not as big as in Iowa as it is nationally, but still significant. And in 2016, John, at this point, Ben Carson was starting to pull ahead of Trump. Um, and then he went and then he went down. Then Ted Cruz started to surge and Ted Cruz eventually won Iowa, but he surged all the way to, I think, 30 or 20. I think he might have won Iowa 28 percent. You know, mm-hmm. Trump is at 40 plus. You know, yeah. this, is not a, this is not the same race. So if someone's going to overtake him in an early state, there's got to be some movement here before too long or we stay on this status quo path. How do you think Ron DeSantis did in this debate? I know there's a lot of people who watch these things and they know that most people 
if they're going to watch this debate, they might check in for the first 20 minutes, check in for the first till the first commercial break. And then a lot of people jump off at that point. And Ron DeSantis didn't start speaking, didn't answer any questions until 16 minutes into this debate. So yeah. what did, did is he being aggressive enough? Is he going after Donald Trump hard enough? Is he is he making his case to the American people in these first two debates? And if not, what more does he have to do? What, where can he? Wh what runway does he have to try and make up some of this ground? Yeah, I'm not sure. You're right that for being center, literally center stage, he was nowhere at the beginning of the debate. He had some moments later and 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 was in in the mix, I guess you'll say. But I I think the challenge for DeSantis is he has had so much attention over the last we'll call it four or five months that I think some voters have seen what he has to offer and they're just not jumping on board. They're, they're not into it. And I, DeSantis and, and the others, but we're talking about DeSantis right now, is kind of trying to have it both ways. He's trying to be Trump-esque in his style, but be a um, uh, an alternative to Trump. But it's not as uh, I don't know. I'm going to risk, you know, John, he's not as mean as Trump. It's it's not as sarcastic <laughs> as Trump. And it just comes off as it's not the same. Only Trump can do what Trump does. And I, there was one mm -hmm. moment in the debate where I think DeSantis said, and I've got this veto pen. That's a terrible DeSantis impression. But it was like, it's like oh, <laughs> wow, yeah. you and your veto. <laughs> it just in <laughs> in the other part that DeSantis is struggling with is that in the polls, he is polling about as well against Biden as Trump is. So the mm -hmm. idea that, oh, Trump is going to lose everything. Some of Trump's supporters say, well, you've told us that before and, and Trump has won or you're not in any you know, much greater position. So what? So what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that, even though DeSantis is leading in, you know, is in second place still in many of the polls, I think you'd rather be a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott uh, in terms of upside in this race. Well, you, let's talk about Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, because those two went after each other. Two South Carolina lawmakers uh, really were on the, going on the offensive against one another. And for those of us who are concerned about policy, this a lot of this conversation about who paid for curtains in, in the governor's office or, you know, this just doesn't make a whole lot of, it doesn't really move the needle for, for people who are, who are watching this, but it is interesting to t to see these two South Carolinian lawmakers really going after each other. And it, it seemed to me that both of them see each other as a, as a real threat to one or the other getting some kind of momentum here. And for Tim Scott, he, he's he's the one who really needed a big moment in this debate, in this debate between the two of them. Because Nikki Haley has, as you mentioned, she's proven to be the better debater so far. What was your what's your reaction to the interplay between those two? Yeah. And Scott has an advantage. He has a financial advantage. He came into the race with more money and can air more ads. Uh I think that the the um the tangle between the two of them was show that the stakes are high because the, I think the consensus is that if both of them are still in the race, when it gets to South Carolina, that that probably just paves the way for Trump that, you know, there can't be Trump plus two South Carolina alternatives in South Carolina. And cause Trump will just keep his base and win with a plurality plurality of the vote. But it, you know, the, the alliances only go so, so far, you know, from Haley appointing yeah. Scott to, uh, to now them tangling over over curtains and and we st we should say that Haley, you know, was also tang you know Haley was getting in her shots against everyone, but her comment uh, against with 
uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, that was one of the more memorable lines of mm-hmm. the night. And then on Twitter or X, I, st- I still call it Twitter. Yeah, you know, they were too. talking about um, the some of the endorsements on Ramaswamy's book was a glowing endorsement from Nikki Haley and how, <laughs> you know, his his intellect and stuff. And the debate stage, she just said she was you know dumber for having heard his answer. So things can flip depending on the, the, the situation the candidates are in. Yeah, they say never meet your heroes, right? I wonder if uh, you know Vivek Ramaswamy was uh, dealing with a little bit of that with with Nikki Haley. Obviously, she was very complimentary on, about his book. And after the first debate, I think if you asked most people who were watching, Vivek Ramaswamy was the winner. Most people thought that he had the best night. He really leaped to the national conversation that evening. And for those who've been following this, we've he's he's been. His, his popularity had been growing up to that first debate. But over the last couple of weeks, kind of as the, the first debate faded into the background, it seemed like some of those numbers were fading a little bit as some more, maybe some more um, opposition research has been done against Ramaswamy with some business ties to China and, and whatnot. How, how is he faring now after this second debate? It seems the bloom is off the rose a little bit with him. I, I think you're exactly right that uh, this is a case where over the last 20 plus years of following campaigns, I've heard a lot of complaints from candidates who say, well, it's that I didn't get a chance or voters didn't know me. They didn't get a chance to know me. They didn't hear from me. I was ignored by the media. And now I think, you know, Ramaswamy had elevated himself. First debate was he was almost a peer with all of these mm-hmm. politicians. Now that they are going after him and looking more at his record, which is fair game as a candidate, there are more questions. And he has some vulnerabilities uh, in in his background and the candidates, if you're perceived as a threat, then they're gonna they're gonna treat you as such and and start to try to exploit those. I, you know, he, he's still in the mix in that lower second tier, uh, but I seems like it would be hard for him to have another bounce or or, or another rebound. But you know, I'm I'm open to the possibility. I want to talk about Mike Pence real quick, too. I interviewed uh, the former vice president at the Prevote Stand Summit uh, last weekend, and I think one of the most fascinating aspects of his candidacy is the evangelical vote. Obviously, he's the strongest on uh, a national law that would per- prevent abortion, and more so than any of the other candidates, he's been the strongest to speak out against that. I think if you were to ask most evangelicals give them truth serum most folks would say he probably his values align most closely with what evangelicals believe in and yet he is trailing so far behind in the polls to donald trump among evangelicals one of the things i asked him was whether he was disheartened by that and i can't i, I can't see you know he said you know we've got a long ways to go yet i, I just you mentioned we have a whole football season until we have to get to the iowa caucuses so things can change but it's hard to see how things are going to change especially among that that voter group and i guess i wanted to get your thoughts on on mike pence and his struggle to connect with evangelicals mike pence is a known commodity and voters are not buying what he's selling. I think he is a perfect leader for for a Republican party that no longer exists. It is not a party that is strictly about policy. It's a party that looks, uh, looks for a certain style and a certain uh, approach, a more confrontational style. And that's just not who Vice President Pence is. And, and so that's why you see more primary voters flocking to or, you know, staying in the Trump camp or flocking to some, you know, someone else who's maybe more confrontational because that's what they want, right? They want someone who's going to 
take it to the establishment and um, the uh, and, and Biden and the Democrats and the liberals and all of that. They want a fighter. And, you know, Pence would argue that he's been in the trenches fighting for conservative causes his entire political career. But it's not the style that voters are, are looking for. And, and John, his his jokes are always kind of dad cringeworthy. But then, you know, the comment with his wife and the teacher, I think everyone's like, no, please don't, please don't go there. Um, and, and, and that's sort of what he gets then, then known for these, these, you know, these jokes, comments that he's trying to make. Uh, so I, I don't, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Mike Pence is not going to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States uh, in 2024. And I think last question on the debate for you here. The third debate um, will be coming up uh, in in a couple of months, and we're looking at the eligibility requirements for that. You have to have at least four percent in two national polls, and or four percent in one national poll, and four percent in at least two of the early state polls. Uh, you also have to have a certain number of seventy thousand unique donors, with at least two hundred donors from twenty or more states or territories. So they're starting to ramp up the requirements a little bit. Do you see a couple of candidates not making it to this next debate? Do we are, are we looking at this field winnowing down at any point in the near future? I don't know about the field winnowing, but the debate stage could be getting smaller. I mean, Doug Burgum, I think, is at risk on that polling threshold. Even Tim Scott might be at risk at that polling threshold. So it will be, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be get more interesting as we as we move along. And Trump has already said he's not going to participate, but you know, there's still time to change depending on if the if the dynamics of the race change. Chris Christie was clearly trying to kind of goad him into the <laughs> goad yeah. him into next one we'll we'll see if it you know we'll see if it works or not but i i do expect a smaller stage and once you're off the stage then it's harder to to really get that attention and get that momentum last thing for you here before we wrap up and it doesn't have anything to do with the debate but in here in november in the state of virginia where where i live there are there, there's a national there are elections taking place for virginia state legislature that are being watched nationally as as a potential bellwether for what we could see in uh, 2024 elections. And I wanted to get your thoughts on on why these Virginia elections coming up in November, why they're being so closely looked at by by national folks and and what it could mean for for 2024. Well, these Virginia elections are getting a lot of attention because they are actual elections and they're happening this year. These aren't hypothetical races that are happening sometime in 2024. They're happening now. And so that's why they get a disproportionate amount of attention. There are some very specific races that... um, 2024 races that could impact on what's happening in 2023. For example, um, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine is up for re-election in 2024. So depending on how well Republicans do, if they have a great year this year, then you could see more energy put into kind of pulling Tim Kaine onto the Senate battleground and and making, making a more serious run at him as Republicans try to win back the Senate. Also, um, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who represents kind of the Washington D.C. exurbs and more of central Central Virginia. Um, she is, it looks like she's thinking about running for governor in 2025 and potentially not running for re-election in 2024 to the U.S. House. But that race is on hold, and her announcement is on hold until these races are over. Uh, and I think they'll be looking toward Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads, and what happens there. There's a competitive congressional district next year, but this year's races could. Um, 
color the amount of enthusiasm or energy depending on, on what happens. And the last thing I'll say about Virginia is that it could be a bellwether. It could also not. <laughs> because remember in 2021 um, uh, with Glenn Youngkin, uh, Glenn Youngkin in that governor's race, that was a huge win, right? A huge win in a state that Biden won by 10 points just a year before. And it looked like those, that was the foundation of a Republican, a red wave. And it turns out that wasn't the case, right? I mean, Republicans won the House in the midterms, but it wasn't a red wave. Democrats or, or Republicans weren't winning in places that Biden won by 10 points. I think a lot of that was the Dobbs decision and there were things that went in. But the point is that uh, a lot is going to happen from the Virginia results this year uh, until November of 2024. Well, you can read all of Nathan's thoughts on all things politics at Inside Elections, and we're always thrilled to have him here on CBN and on the DC Debrief. Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Elections, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. We'll see you next time. We're looking ahead. There's not a whole lot on the calendar for next week as Washington is gripped over whether there will be a government shutdown or not and whether there'll actually be anything going on with the government at all. Uh, But on Sunday, uh, October 1st, Jimmy Carter celebrates his 99th birthday on Monday. The trial begins in the civil suit brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James against the Trump Organization. That suit alleges that Uh, The Trump Organization has routinely inflated the asset valuations of its corporate property holdings, which allows it to obtain economic benefits, including loans, insurance coverage, and tax deductions for years. Uh, So that's going to begin on Monday. On Tuesday... Uh, The Religious Freedom Institute will host a day-long event in the Russell Senate Office Building to commemorate the signing of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, And then uh, later in the week on Friday, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly Annual Session will begin, where all 274 parliament members representing 31 NATO member states and approximately 100 members from around 25 partner countries will get together and talk about the Euro-Atlantic Defense and Security Agenda. So that's what's coming up next week. But of course, uh, it's, it could be a very strange week in Washington, D.C. if the government shutdown does go through. All right, time for our closer for this week. And President Joe Biden's younger dog, Commander, is once again making headlines for the wrong reasons. Commander who's just, I believe in my heart, a good boy trying to do his best, bit another U.S. Secret Service agent at the White House Monday evening, uh, according to CNN, and that is the 11th known biting incident involving the two-year-old German Shepherd. Uh, USSS Chief of Communications Anthony Guglielmi told CNN that uh, around 8 p.m. on uh, it was on uh, Thursday of this week, a Secret Service Uniform Division police officer came in contact with a first family pet and was bitten. The officer was treated by medical personnel on complex. It was not a serious injury. Uh, Commander has been involved, as I mentioned, in at least 11 biting incidents at the White House and in Delaware. That's according to CNN reporting and U.S. Secret Service email correspondence, which also included an incident in November of 2022 where an officer was hospitalized after the dog clamped down on their thighs and arms. White House officials said in July that the Bidens were working through new training and leashing protocols for commander following the incidents, but it's unclear 
uh, where Commander is in those training and leashing protocols. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. And please, again, make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.